guys, and welcome back to episode number 155 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. As per usual, you're joined by your hosts, Tierra and Jack, and we've got another Q&A lined up for everyone today. So we're going to get straight into this first question, which says, how much do you take into account the health star rating on food packaging? Great question. So the health star rating, I'm fairly sure that that is unique to Australia and New Zealand in terms of labeling certain food products. I haven't actually heard about other countries, for example, like the US and Canada using a health star rating. Have you? No, I haven't. No, they might have their own schemes, but I'm not sure about the health star rating. Mm, I'm fairly sure some countries use something kind of similar, like a traffic light system. They have like a red and amber and then a green for which foods are healthiest and which foods are perhaps not so quote unquote healthy. I'm fairly sure that it is unique here to Australia. Mm, Yeah, I think so. And basically for those who aren't familiar, uh, which many of you might not be, it's a voluntary scheme organized by the Australian government where the manufacturers of food products are able to utilize the health star rating if they want. So it begs the question if, if something has a half a star health star rating, why would the company actually want to voluntarily do that? I don't know, but I have seen it before. And let's take some oats, for example. A popular brand of oats in Australia is Uncle Toby's, and they have a five-star health star rating on their products. So basically, the health star rating has a lot of mixed sort of reviews in terms of how good people think it is. And we'll get into that in a little bit more depth in a second. But Tierra can explain, like, what exactly does it mean? Yeah, so with the Health Star rating, I'm sure it has good intentions, you would hope. It's trying to help people make healthier choices when they are shopping at mm. the supermarket. So it's a 10-point system, so it goes from half a star all the way up to five stars. And ultimately, a food is going to have more stars and be deemed more healthy on this point rating system if it contains higher fruit and vegetable content, more protein, more dietary fiber, and it has relatively low levels of saturated fat, sugar, salt, and also total energy intake per 100 grams. However, there's quite a few loopholes in that system, and also not all products are compared equally. The Health Star rating system, it actually compares products between food categories. So for example, it's not fair to compare a yogurt to a granola bar to a juice box because all of those different foods would be labeled in different categories. So it's only really fair to compare dairy products to dairy products, granola bars to granola bars, and beverages to beverages per se. Mm -hmm. That's something that I think quite a few people don't actually know is that it's within certain categories of the products. It's not just the entire supermarket is ranked on a 0.5 to five star rating. Yeah. And I think we have to bear in mind that because it's developed by the government, it's not specific to individuals. It's not specific to athletes either. And the, the goal of the government is to reduce chronic disease mainly. And therefore they're going to be generating these star ratings with the intention of reducing chronic disease, reducing prevalence of overweight and obesity as well. 
And therefore, people with a certain degree of nutritional knowledge, like the health star rating, is not going to do them any favors. Like it, it's negligible. It's more so for people who struggle to purchase the correct food for their for their goals, or for people who need to eat fewer calories to assist with weight loss and etc. Mm-hmm. But even then, there's quite a few loopholes. Like for example, you mentioned Uncle Toby's prior, and Uncle Toby's is actually owned by Nestle, which we kind of all know Nestle for their chocolate, right? But they will voluntarily put a five-star health rating on an Uncle Toby's product, but then all of their chocolate products, like let's say a a nice hot cocoa powder, they might not put a health star rating on that. But because you saw it on the Uncle Toby's product, you might be like, oh, Uncle Toby's or Nestle, that's a healthy brand. So then when you go and buy those other similar brands, then you might pick those compared to others because you're like, oh, well, it was healthier in the other aisle. Mm. Yeah, totally. And because the health star rating is determined by like the sugar content, saturated fat, dietary fiber, and whether it's like a fruit or vegetable or incorporates fruit and vegetables, like you can technically, I don't know, fortify something with dietary fiber maybe or uh, add more protein to it because protein also biases it as well. A lot of cereals actually do that. So for example, the Nutrigrain cereal, that's just the original, pretty sure that has around like a two star health rating. But then if you buy the Nutrigrain cereal that has protein in it, which is only like a few grams of protein, it bumps it up by a few stars to like four or 4.5. Or some products are even sneaky in terms of not the actual product you're buying, but how you're going to prepare it. So for example, Milo, which a lot of people here in Australia and New Zealand would be familiar with, it's like that chocolate powder. And Milo by itself would probably receive like a 1.5 star rating, but when prepared with milk, it's closer to around four stars Mm. (laughs) because milk is really nutritious. So yeah, there's, there's certainly a lot of loopholes that different companies try to dive through. And they've actually done a recent review, the Australian government to say, should the health star rating be mandatory? And they actually haven't come to a definitive answer yet. So right now it does still remain as voluntary, but there are supermarkets like Kohl's and Woolworths where all of their home brand products they actually have committed to putting health stars on all of their own products, which is actually pretty good. Yeah, I think most people though will, it only takes a certain degree of common sense to know, okay, this is discretionary, (laughs) this is not discretionary, this is a fruit, this is a vegetable, but... But that's why it's confusing as well, because if something contains fruit content, then it's given a higher health star rating, but if you were to buy fresh produce like go into the actual fruit aisle yes common sense is telling you that fruit pretty nutritious pretty darn good for you but there's no stars on the apples or the oranges but if you go into the fruit juice aisle and something's like a hundred percent fruit juice that could receive a four or five star health rating as well so it can be a bit misleading and also in terms of the sugar they actually don't differentiate between what is added sugar and what is naturally occurring sugars. For example, the sugars that are in fruits or that are in dairy products. So yeah, it's a bit up in the air, but what's your whole take on the whole thing? Like when you go shopping, do you let Jack, the dietitian, do you let the health stars on your cereal packets and your hummus, do they influence your purchase? 
No, they don't, surprisingly. <laughs> and yeah, I think my overall verdict is I think it has good intentions, but I think there are schemes that people could understand more efficiently. Like I think the traffic light system, I believe that's the UK that does that, but mm-hmm. I might be wrong. I think that is more useful because it's quite easy to interpret and doesn't seem like there's as many loopholes to it. It has good intentions, but yeah, I think there are better schemes that could work. Mm -hmm. Most certainly. But yeah, it is just confusing if people are comparing products to products because, for example, they'll see apple juice and that might be rated as five stars, but then you might have something like extra virgin olive oil and that's only rated as three stars. And it's like, well, you and I both know that extra virgin olive oil probably has more micronutrition than a little apple juice box. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so good intentions, but I reckon that people should look beyond the stars and I think that they should learn how to read nutritional labels and actually look at what are the ingredients in this food and actually what is the macronutrient distribution breakdown. And don't be scared if something has, you know, some salt in it. We know that salt is perfectly fine to consume and sodium content, it helps to preserve foods as well. So yeah, there's, uh, there's just a lot of different arguments to it, but I wouldn't mm. let it, I wouldn't just fill up a shopping cart just full of all the five stars and just go up and down the aisles. No, I think that <laughs> would be a waste of time. Cool. All right. Well, what's the next question? This one says, tips for getting your meals in when you're not hungry during a surplus. Just got to do it, man. (laughs) Just eat it. (laughs) Does anyone else know that song by Weird Al? (laughs) Just eat it. (laughs) Crack another egg and beat it. Is that what you do, Jack? Pretty sure I hear you singing that every single day in the kitchen. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Or maybe I'm singing that to you when you're like, oh, God, can't take another bite. Well, what are some tips? Yeah, so we've answered, I think, a rendition of this question a few times, but certainly one we get quite frequently. And it's certainly something that I go through intermittently as well. So I think overarchingly, like this is kind of the most boring answer, but part of it is like you just, if it's in, in a line with your goals and you want to achieve those goals, like you have two choices. You can either not eat the food or you can eat the food. Mm-hmm. I almost think of it on the flip side of dieting. Mm-hmm. So for example... When you're dieting, you're hungry and you want to eat. Does that mean that you eat? Not necessarily. Yeah, that's <laughs> not if it's not in line it. with your goals. So it's it's give and take. Mm. And yeah, you can choose not to eat, but then it's not as in line with your goals. So mm-hmm. it, it is actually very good. I'll probably use that from now on. Like it's the opposite of weight loss. Like mm. just because you're hungry doesn't mean you eat when you're trying to lose weight. It's the, the opposite of that. But certainly some things that I recognize when people are in a surplus and they're not hungry, like what are some things that influence appetite? So things that influence appetite is, I guess, partly your genetics and your level of food focus, stuff like that. Also your degree of body fat. So that influences your hunger hormones, leptin and ghrelin. So potentially it might be time to do an appetite resensitization phase where you go into a a smaller or a, a significant deficit for a short period that has certainly worked for some of my clients but I to be honest I don't do that very often I think it's quite rare when people truly lose their appetite in a surplus because most people are spending more time dieting than in a surplus unfortunately that's the way uh, that people go about things these days Mm -hmm. and also like the composition of your meal so is it something that entices hunger signaling is it something that you would look forward to eating for example if 
if someone is or if I was still eating like potato egg white omelets with pumpkin and Brussels sprouts, like there's no way in hell I'm going to be Can't wait that. for meal three. <laughs> yeah, that was a specialty in prep. Like I would chuck some pumpkin and Brussels sprouts in a pan and then chuck some egg whites on top and mm. have some salt and pepper. Mm. Would sniff your nose over the pan and everything. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, when I'm definitely not going to be eating that right now. So you need to, when you're in a surplus make the foods that you're eating more palatable when you're in a deficit. And this is a big mistake people often make is they try and increase the palatability of their foods in a deficit mm-hmm. when there's no need to. It's just going to make your food focus even greater. It's going to make you hungrier. It's going to make you look forward to that food even more in a deficit, which you don't want to mm-hmm. do. So That's something I've certainly noticed as well in that like when people are trying to get more food in, they are almost opting for like plain quite high volume very satiating foods so things like potatoes with just yeah a little thing of ketchup on them or just some salt and pepper but then when they're in a deficit they'll like drown 30 grams of oats in queen's free maple syrup Mm -hmm. it's like no 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 it it should be on the flip side except real maple syrup yeah (laughs) well not if you're in a deficit (laughs) well yeah flip side is in in a surplus you need to drown those oats in yeah but the main take home is like yeah make foods more palatable when you are trying to get more food in and you want to make it more appealing more enticing you really look forward to your meals if you're almost trying to make yourself a little bit more food focused but then again if you're in a deficit you want to do it on the flip side you still want food to be able to go down you don't want to be gagging over your food or anything like that but you don't want to necessarily like with every single bite, just wish like, oh man, like I just, I wish there was more. Mm. Yeah, some things that help me and I think this is where we'll, we'll actually help provide some value. So f- things that help me is sticking to a really consistent schedule, eating uh, X number of meals per day at within plus or minus half an hour window, which is something I've done for literally like a year straight now. Sure, there might've been a few days that I missed, but it's almost always same number of meals at the same time yeah that is honestly just so important because sometimes people they give in to their hunger signals or lack of mm. and then they'll check in and they'll be like i'm just not hungry in the morning so i'm not eating till about 1 p.m in the afternoon yeah. and i'm like no like that's a mistake like you gotta fight that you still have to eat breakfast mm. and there's harder things to do in the world than eat breakfast <laughs> especially because People end up eating more at dinner and then they'll be super full going to bed and then they'll wake up super full and it just creates that cycle Mm. of waking up full, waiting again till dinner, eating everything at dinner and then waking up full again. So need to break that cycle. Also choosing foods that digest really well and agree with you. So in prep or in in weight loss phases, it's not as big of a deal to maybe eat something that doesn't agree with you 100% or causes maybe a little bit of bloating or is a little bit more difficult to digest because, I mean, it, it helps. In a, not, this is kind of tough to, I guess, explain, but like you want to, if you're eating more food, you want to be able to digest that more efficiently mm-hmm. and not cause bloating or discomfort, which is going to hinder yeah. your appetite. Each to their own. It's always going to be worth that trade-off. Mm-hmm. Eh? Like if someone's like, yeah, cabbage is really low in calories and I'm quite hungry. So I'm going to just make myself a cabbage salad. And then afterwards you feel like you're a little bit pregnant, but you're like, it's worth it because now I'm satiated, but Mm. wouldn't be making yourself cabbage salads when you are, you know, struggling to get all your other food down too. Yeah. So for example, a lot of people who eat a decent amount of food, a common theme 
for them is rice, especially white rice products. So that could be ground rice for cream of rice. That could be white rice for lunch or dinner with obviously meat or vegetables, etc. Mm-hmm. It could be rice-based cereals like... Rice so, bubbles. <laughs> cocoa pops. Not enough people get amongst rice noodles, man. Like rice noodles, they are higher in carbs, bit lower in protein, way lower in fiber than other types of pasta. And I'd say like gram for gram, they're probably a little bit more lower volume. Not many people get amongst like the rice noodles, like pad thai noodles. Okay. But I just mean not enough people actually, they remember to actually, oh, rice noodles. They always Fair just thing. go for the rice. Yeah. Yeah. But... Yeah, if you can eat more of something without it increasing satiety, then that's a win in a surplus. So, mm-hmm. yeah, those are the main points for me. I think by far for me, because I definitely experience this stage of the off-season for the majority of the off-season, I, I tend to adapt very, very quickly to being full, which I guess is nice because I, I don't like being hungry. But for me, it's definitely the routine. If I don't have a routine for my eating and when I'm eating and what I'm eating, then... I'll find that really, really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess when we talk about the word palatability, so what actually makes a food palatable, usually the three amigos are going to be sugar, fat, and salt. So for example, let's say that you have a bowl of oatmeal. If you wanted to jazz that up with something that's highly palatable, what I personally do is I actually sprinkle on like some pumpkin seeds or some sort of nut for like a fat source. And then I also drizzle on a little bit of coconut oil and then I will sprinkle that with salt. And I'm telling you that on some oats with some cacao powder, that goes down just a treat. So <laughs> That's a tiara sort of thing to do there. I would Dude, just put on some nut butter and some honey or maple syrup or something. Coconut oil with nuts and salt, man. Like there's quite possibly nothing better. <laughs> but like that's how to actually make a meal really palatable. But Boy, like if you're in a dieting phase, I wouldn't encourage doing that to your oatmeal. I'd recommend probably just maybe just sticking to some plain oats or like some oats with just a little bit of cinnamon or something like that. Like something that still tastes good, but again, like it doesn't leave you feeling just incredibly food focused and just not satisfied following. Mm. Yeah. Hey guys, just a reminder that we don't just coach physique athletes, but we do coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. Therefore, if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, you can always head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com or alternatively, click the link in the show notes below. Yeah, so interestingly, actually most weeks we get a few personal questions. A lot of them are centered around like, uh, oh, will you guys ever not track macros again (laughs) or... People just want to throw us off track, man. (laughs) (laughs) Or like, will you ever stop training? Or like, how often do you have an off-plan meal? And I think maybe some people don't know us that well. But it's not the fact that we are like 100 million percent dedicated to bodybuilding Mm. and all that stuff. It's just that we are very, very Mm routine-based. And also, we are very similar as well in our attitudes. And I think often when people have off-plan meals or when they when they decide to take a break from macro tracking or training might not always be their decision but people around them as well Mm -hmm. and that's why we tend to stay on track it's not like we don't 
care about if we had an offline meal once a week or decide not to track macros or miss the occasional training session because in the long run it's not going to make that much difference but at the end of the day like neither you or i are deprived of anything and we always just do what we want to do and we lead the lives with like we want to lead without any justification and this is exactly what we want to do (laughs) Mm. so yeah i guess one of the questions we got was will you ever not track calories or macros and yeah, I can easily say yes. I'm sure I'm not going to be tracking macros at 80 years old. No, definitely <laughs> not. <laughs> but for now, it's just so in line with our goals and it genuinely just keeps us on track as mm. well. I personally really enjoy it. I don't find any barriers to it and it actually just en- enriches my life and en- enriches my health and just it keeps me working toward my goals in a more productive and efficient manner. Mm. Yeah, if I didn't track macros, then I wouldn't really be eating any differently anyway, because Mm. unless I stop bodybuilding, that's when I would probably stop tracking macros or calories, because sure, I I will admit that not tracking macros or calories would give me a little bit more freedom, would be a bit easier to eat just naturally. But then again, like, is that something that you feel like you want to do? No, I'm not deprived of that at the moment. And if I did try and do that, it probably would take away from my goals somewhat because if I ate intuitively, then I would lose weight Mm. because at the moment I'm having to eat a lot of food in order to maintain or gain weight. So I'm the exact same, like intuitively, I know that I would not be eating as high of a carbohydrate amount when I'm purposely trying to gain weight. Mm. uh, If I wasn't tracking because for example, like back when we were in uni, I, I didn't used to track for those first few years of when we were in uni, but I was still on a very routine base with my food. But for example, if we were in a prac and that prac, rather than sitting in the class and learning something, we actually went out for two hours and we're like running around a field doing all of these drills that we then had to collect data for and then do an assignment on my idea of like, oh, I just ran around a field for two hours. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to put an extra quarter cup of oats into my bowl of oatmeal at lunch and keep everything else the same. So that's actually why I think I got held back for quite a number of years because I never actually pushed my body weight up. I was around like 64 kilograms for so long. I was just there. I would never actually push up. That's quite heavy up. for some people though. <laughs> okay, well, I'm 176.4 centimeters tall. So 64 kilograms ain't too uh, bad for me. But what I mean is like, I never actually pushed my body weight up and kept building more muscle mass because I wasn't really in the know of how much energy I actually required to do that. Like intuitively, I, I wouldn't eat the amount that I eat when I'm trying to gain weight. And mm. you would be the exact same. Yeah, I definitely... When I used to eat intuitively, I, again, the exact same position, I'm 90 kilos now or so, and I was around 78, 80 <laughs> kilos when I ate intuitively <laughs> because I, I just like eating very wholesome foods naturally. And I also like having an appetite for each meal. And those two goes hand in hand. I get satiated after each meal and I don't eat at like, I probably around 2500 calories i would say Mm. which is a deficit for me and i feel like you and i also like when we didn't use to track as diligently or went through phases of not necessarily tracking we almost veered toward some higher fat foods as well we never pushed our carbohydrates up to the point that we do now so like if we were having a salad you know like put two tablespoons of olive oil on there but just have like a little bit of potato on the side when really now we would do the flip like Mm. might put 10 mils of olive oil on there like two teaspoons 
have half a kilogram of mashed potato. <laughs> mm. Or I would also have a lot more vegetables if I didn't track as well because mm. I like vegetables, but they're very filling and they are very low in calories as well. So yeah. I can't, my appetite doesn't allow for them. So yeah, many people might look at the, I guess more so for me because my, I would say my caloric demands make me manipulate my diet to a slightly less nutritious approach than mm. you, mm-hmm. which I would say my diet is still very nutritious, but it's not as nutritious as it could be. And that's just the kind of the path you take when you have to eat over 4,000 calories a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And hold yourself accountable to eating it all mm. every single day. Yeah. Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular content on our Instagram and YouTube channel. You can find those platforms by searching the bodybuilding dietitians. See you there. Okay, so this one says another one about us, kind of celebrities on this episode. <laughs> Why do you guys consume such low fat? Oh boy, such low fat. How do you define such low fat? Is it subjective or objective? Sounds pretty subjective to me. <laughs> we could give some objective numbers. So mm. the recommendations are for your total daily energy intake to have anywhere between 20 to 35% of your calories coming from dietary fat or in terms of body weight anywhere between probably 0.5 of a gram to 1.5 grams of dietary fat per kilogram of body weight yeah and we're both within those guidelines approximately yeah we are but just toward the lower end Mm. so i'm about 90 kilos i consume 80 grams of fat per day Mm mm-hmm which means I'm just under one gram per kilo of body weight. Yeah. And when I was around, like, well, when I was gaining weight up to 70 kilograms, I was eating 60 grams of fat per day. But now dieting, I'm on 40 grams of fat per day at 66. But Mm. even 0.5 of a gram per kilo of body weight for me right now would be 33 grams of dietary fat per day. And eating 40 grams per day, still certainly above that. But we know that it's not just about macros either. For example, you could be consuming one gram per kilogram of body weight of dietary fat per day, but the majority of that dietary fat is just coming from like saturated meat sources and a lot of peanut butter. Like you don't have a lot of variety in your diet. Mm. Otherwise you could be consuming closer to 0.5 of a gram per kilo of body weight per day technically half the amount of total dietary fat, but you could be filling those calories and those macronutrients with nuts and seeds and extra virgin olive oil and avocado and olives and oily fish and lean sources of dairy and meat and whole grains, whatever it may be. So you'd be consuming less dietary fat overall, but you'd have more variety in your diet. Plus all of those foods you'd be getting extra micronutrients from as well. But I would almost argue if that's the case, then that would potentially be a more nutritious option compared to just looking at the number overall. Yeah, for sure. Um, Often people do have a very saturated fat rich diet and low in monounsaturated fat sources. So for example, they, I don't know, might not have any fat or they might have eggs at breakfast, which is mainly saturated fat. And then they might have some mayonnaise at lunch on their sandwich or on their salad and then for dinner they'll have a steak Mm -hmm. and then maybe some ice cream after dinner Mm -hmm. and that's mainly saturated fat sources or not particularly i mean other than the eggs not particularly nutritious Mm -hmm. so i completely agree it's more so quality over quantity 
And it's also, as you, as we said, subjective, like someone says, Oh, why do you have such a high protein diet? Because it aligns with my goals. Cause like and, protein, bro, you want to yeah. fight. <laughs> and like, it's also in relation to body weight as well for protein. So someone who weighs literally like 30 kilos more, of course, they're going to need a decent amount more protein than you. Mm-hmm. That I, I, totally agree i always think that macronutrients should really be based on you as an individual not necessarily a total percentage of your total daily calorie Mm. intake because boy if you have an absurdly high calorie intake like let's say that you need to consume four thousand calories per day and it says that you can consume up to 35 percent of that from dietary fat Mm. that's a lot of dietary fat that is that's a lot of dietary fat and even on the flip side too so for example let's say someone is relatively overweight and they're carrying a lot of adipose tissue already and let's say that they are 100 kilograms then if you go off one gram per kilogram of body weight per day then that's 100 grams of fat per day right Mm. 50 grams of fat per day for someone who's trying to diet that doesn't sound like too low if they're in an energy deficit relative when you're like oh that's only half a gram per kilogram of body weight yeah so it, it really depends on what the situation is i think but Obviously, there are a lot of negative connotations to going way too low in dietary fat for a prolonged period of time coincided with not getting enough essential fatty acids in your diet. That's when you can unfortunately run into quite a few hormonal issues and just yeah, just negative issues just overall with your health in terms of you can you can almost start to see it like your nails start to become a little bit flaky your skin starts going a little bit weird if you have a blood test things like your testosterone can be tanked yeah women can lose their menstrual cycles it's obviously very multifactorial but yeah uh i would work alongside a dietitian find out how much dietary fat you should be consuming per day and from which sources mm, totally And for example, I have clients who weigh less than me, like let's say 80 kilos and I have them on hundred grams of fat a day because that's what they like and they would rather bias their carbohydrates are sufficient for performance. And they say, Hey Jack, I'd rather bias fats because I prefer that. Mm -hmm. And if it's not going to, if I think it's going to negatively impact their progress or performance, I'll let them know. And if not, then sure. There's no reason not to really. Mm. I would imagine that case though the majority of those clients aren't dieting on a hundred grams of fat no, per day. They're <laughs> no, they're not. Uh, yes, that would be t- difficult or make it little, unless they were doing keto, which I've never done for a client. Mm. That's yeah. the, that's the reason it's not that you would lower dietary fat for the purpose of, Oh, dietary fat is inherently bad or unhealthy, or you should limit your intake. It's more so that you need to take your total daily energy requirements into account and you need to bias calories still coming from carbohydrates and protein. And usually if you are following more of a bodybuilder's lifestyle, usually that ends up biasing more calories coming from carbohydrates and protein compared to dietary fat in most circumstances. Mm. Plus you have to take into consideration per gram, fat is twice as energy dense as carbs and protein. More than twice. Yeah, nine versus the four. Mm. So this final question says, Does it make a difference for protein oats if it goes in before or after you cook the oats? (laughs) It definitely makes a difference to the texture. And I think a lot of people, well, anyone who's had protein oats before, I can't speak for everyone, but uh, quite a few people on this planet would have probably experienced this. 
but it doesn't actually nutritionally make a difference. You are still consuming the same micronutrition, the same amino acids from that protein. Yeah, just to, so everyone's on the same page, they're talking about protein powder. So should you stir the protein powder in before or after? And I've certainly tried it both ways. I have, I think I've only done it a handful of times where you stir the protein powder in afterwards because it is definitely better if you do it before to the texture. No way. Are we on different? We are on different pages here. Yo. Actually, then, then again, you don't, you don't ever consume protein oats. Protein po- oats is like a staple for me in prep. I yeah. literally have it every day. But I used to, and I went to the beach like three weeks ago, and I oh, prepped okay. some protein oats. You have to stir it in afterwards, man. If you cook the oats with the protein in them, that's when it becomes all clumpy and stuff. Oh, you're a rookie. No way. I'm not a rookie. The, the oats and protein just don't mix well if you microwave them together. You you stir well, it in afterwards. It yeah, I'm, this is, I need to educate you now. Okay, so give me a tutorial. Where people go wrong is that they just dump all the ingredients in a bowl, then they pour the water in and stir it. Then yes, I agree that the protein powder gets clumpy, which is not good. So what you need to do is mix the oats, all the dry ingredients together with the protein powder and you stir that up and mix all the protein powder around. Then you add the water and then it doesn't get clumpy. That's how you do it. Mm, I don't know. I feel like I've tried this before and it's still clumped, man. Well, you'll have to try it, it is, again. It's guaranteed to definitely not be clumped if you add it in afterwards. And it's just, it's super smooth. Yeah, but it's also not quite as thick, but... Anyway, we'll agree to disagree. Leave it on the counter and let it retrogradate. (laughs) Thicken up, (laughs) brah. Okay, but either way, you're you're still getting the full amino acids as well. Like, it's not like whatever the texture ends up being, cooking your protein Mm. powder, you're still getting... It's kind of like cooking an egg. Yeah. Does cooking an egg destroy the amino acids? No, it doesn't. But the egg's definitely a lot more enjoyable. Depends how badly you cook it. (laughs) Yeah. If it's black. Yeah, if you burn the egg. (laughs) Mm. Anyway, that's all the questions. So we'll end on, I guess, one more question, which says, what is something that you learned this week, Tierra? Oh boy. Okay. So something that I learned this week is that trees can talk to one another. Well, not talk, but trees can communicate with one another, which is really interesting. So through their root systems, trees can actually send certain chemicals to other trees to actually either provide them with nutrients or send them little messages. So for example, if you have a tree that is being infested by some sort of insect, the tree will actually send some messages to the other trees nearby to say, hey, I'm being eaten alive, but I'm gonna take one for the team. You guys protect yourselves. And then those other trees can actually start to produce like somewhat, I guess you could call it poison per se, that would then repel those types of insects if they were to try to eat those other trees, which is really interesting. Or it, it used to be the case that people thought that, oh, they're all in competition with one another. Like the trees that are trying to grow taller, they want all the sunlight. They want to shade the other dudes so they can't photosynthesize and shiz, and then they die. (laughs) But the case is is that actually the trees that grow really tall, they'll actually look after the little guys and they, they will actually send some nutrients to the little guys so they can keep growing. How do they send the nutrients? Through the roots. So do the roots, like, I don't know. Through the root system. I'm sure they, I'm sure they touch. I don't know. Intermingle. <laughs> there's some, um, there's some sensation or mm. what happens when you touch a human affectionately? 
Uh, you caress them. Yeah, there's some caressing going on between the roots. But either way, they got each other's backs. They got each other's roots. That's just what I learned, that trees can communicate with one another. It's pretty cool. Mm, that is cool. Yeah. I didn't know that either. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not a botanist, if you can't tell. <laughs> yeah, I would have to ask my brother. <laughs> but Jack, what did you learn this week? So I learned a, more of a lesson rather than anything else. But usually what I do each week when I go grocery shopping is... I always have my Milo cereal in the morning, but then I choose the second cereal as part of my post-workout. And usually I choose that based off if it's on sale or not. So there was this Carmen's one on sale, which Carmen's is an Australian brand. It's actually quite a nutritious brand. It's pretty decent. Oh, the, the Hellstar rating systems mm, got you there. It's quite good, yeah. Four or five. Okay. <laughs> I don't know about some of their products. Anyway, I didn't. I don't actually didn't look at the Hellstar rating. I just saw that it was on clearance, so I bought it. And turns out that it's like this super gut health, like makes you go to the bathroom cereal. So it has a lot of fiber, a lot of wheat bran. That's how it boosted up the stars, bruh. Mm. Yeah, but definitely not what I needed post-workout. So <laughs> I'm still going to eat it anyway because I bought it. And it's going to take me a while to get through it because I only use 25 grams each day. But I won't be making that mistake again. Yeah, you can do it. So read the label. Yeah, I will next time. Yes. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. If you did enjoy it, remember that if you are listening on the iTunes or Spotify app and you think that we're worthy, we would really appreciate a five-star rating and potentially write us a review. That just helps us reach more people and more people can find the channel. But as always, if you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, and we'll catch you next week.